0: If you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Jonah in chapter 4. Jonah in chapter 4. If you don't have a Scripture journal for Jonah and those other minor prophets that are in there and you want one, feel free to grab one now if you'd like on the welcome desk there. This will be our final uh, sermon from Jonah, the study that we've begun at the beginning of the year. I'm kind of bummed out. Uh, But we must go back to Luke, and we will do that uh, next week where we left off. So Luke 12 is where we'll start, uh, back into Luke next week. Now, if you want a scripture journal for Luke, but you happen to not be here, uh, when we got those or you lost yours or you filled them up, uh, we ordered some more and those are on the welcome desk as well. So feel free between now and then to grab one of those, um, between now and next week. But for today, we're going to be in Jonah and we're going to be in chapter four, and we're going to be in verses one through 11. So we're going to look at the whole, Chapter this morning, especially focusing on verses 5 through 11, as we talked about 1 through 4 last week. But let's go ahead and just read the whole chapter together. It'll be behind me on the screen in my translation as well for you to follow along there. Holy Spirit says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life away from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till till he should see what would become of the city. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Amen. It's God's word. May God write its eternal truths. On all of our hearts. In the before times, when department stores were extremely common, you remember those things? Um, And found virtually in every city in America, a robbery took place at one of the largest and most prominent stores. This particular robbery happened in the middle of the night uh, when no one was there, and these two robbers entered the store, they did as they pleased, and they left. And the, the police and the department store employees were none the wiser. And actually, it took weeks for anyone to realize what had happened. See, what made this robbery unique is the two robbers didn't actually steal anything. Not a single item was taken. What they did is they rearranged all the price tags. And that's it. They took the high price tags off the expensive jewelry, and they put it on the costume jewelry. Then they took the bargain price tags off the costume jewelry and put them on the really expensive stuff. The next day, the store opened for business as usual. And for the next several weeks, no one seemed to notice that folks were buying $10,000 rings for a few bucks. Well, this story didn't happen, okay? but it's a parable that Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard told that I adapted What Kierkegaard was attempting to communicate with that parable was that the gospel is like the robbers who switch the price tags all around, in that it it should switch around our assumptions of worth and value. He said, people have no ability to tell the truly valuable from the virtually worthless. It wasn't about jewelry for Kierkegaard, you understand. It was about whether we understand how the gospel flips things on their heads and makes and wrecks are categories. He, He was saying that Jesus comes into the department store, as it were, and he shows us that the way we reckon things, the way we value things, is not the same way that God does. Well, he might say Jesus comes, the gospel comes, grace comes, and flips everything upside down. Really, it's the world that's upside down. And Jesus has come to put things the right side up. But the mathematics of grace are strange, aren't they? Frederick Bauchner called the arithmetic of Jesus atrocious. Wagner said, Jesus said that heaven gets a bigger kick out of one sinner who repents than out of 99 saints who don't need to. He said that God pays as much for one hour's work as for one day's. He, he said that the more you give away, the more you'll have. It's this seemingly unfair mathematics of grace that our friend Jonah finds so objectionable. Jonah's mathematics are fine. They're simple, they're tidy, they're black and white. God's mathematics are what's messed up and out of whack, according to Jonah. God's arithmetic is outrageous, confusing, and unfair. If only God would just account for the way things should be, the same way that Jonah does, everything would be okay. For Jonah, it's simple, isn't it? And for you too. Bad people should get what? Bad. And good people should get good. Bad people should be destroyed. Good people should live long lives. Bad people should suffer. Good people should flourish. Bad people should be judged. Good people should be rewarded. These were Jonah's categories. And they made sense to him. For Jonah, anything outside of that paradigm was unjust, and he didn't want any part of it. As we reach the end of the book of Jonah, what we see in vivid detail is that God will not be made to fit into Jonah's categories. God refuses to be shoved into the box of Jonah's paradigm of so-called fairness, and he refuses to fit into ours too. One of Jonah's problems, of course, is that his system is not as black and white as he would like to think. His system of fairness is actually not that fair. His cries for justice are not that just. His ideas of mercy is not merciful. And on top of all that, they aren't very consistent either, as we will see. In the concluding episode of this book, God is showing Jonah that it is his worldview that's askew. His views of mercy and justice are all out of whack. His idea of grace is broken. Why can't Jonah just see that? Why can't we just see that? Well, here's why, and it's what the whole book has been pointing to the whole time. It's because God's grace is outrageous. If we were to synthesize the main point of our text this morning, that's what it would be. God's grace is outrageous. And I mean outrageous in two primary ways, okay? Two ways I mean about that word. God's grace is outrageous in the sense that it's lavish. It's abundant, right? It's overwhelming. Once it, you experience it, it drives you to awe and transformation. But there's another sense, isn't there? God's grace is also outrageous in that it's offensive, It should, rightly understood, make us outraged. And you'll see what I mean as we go. So let's allow those two ideas of God's outrageous grace serve as our two main points this morning, okay? Point one, God's grace is outrageous in its offensiveness. God's grace is outrageous in its offensiveness. Or to put it another way around, if grace doesn't offend you, it's possible you don't understand it. Let's see, okay? Where we find our prophet friend Jonah in verse 5 is on the outskirts of the city, in the desert, in the Middle East, and he's setting himself up a little place to sit so he can watch Nineveh, okay? builds himself a little booth uh, so that he could see what would happen. His hope, of course, is that he could watch it be destroyed. That's what he's hoping. He knows they repented, okay? He was there for that. He knows who God is as he is merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relents from disaster, And we know from verses one through four that this was the problem he had all along, right? That God is who he said he was. He didn't like that God could be who he said he was to people outside of Jonah's nation and ethnic group. So he was angry. He was angry with God. He was angry that he had a part in God's offer of grace. He was angry with all of it. But he's also hoping against hope that the Ninevites would revert back to their idolatrous, sinful ways and then God would do what? Destroy them. Or at the very least, he thought, well, God changed his mind on bringing disaster to Nineveh once. Maybe he'll change his mind again and decide to bring disaster after all, maybe even in response to my protest. He preached to them, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And he was willing to sit and watch for 40 days. For their repentance to not be genuine so that he could see this wicked city destroyed and what a show it would be. Well, you know, uh, ancient Nineveh is actually where present day Mosul is in Iraq. And I was thinking about this, I'm reminded of in 2003, some of you guys remember the invasion of Iraq, you could turn on the TV, do you guys remember this? And see in real time, what they called shock and awe campaign uh, with missiles and explosion, you guys remember? warplanes and tanks, and just a spectacle of modern warfare and technology. That's what Jonah was hoping to see. He wanted some shock and awe. He wanted to see this evil people vanquished right before his eyes from fire, from on high. Then maybe this whole trip wouldn't be so bad after all. Of course, we know what happened, don't we? Jonah got none of that. What did he get instead? He got another, yet another, object lesson from God about justice and mercy. See, as Jonah is posted up under his makeshift booth, it turned out his building skills left a lot to be desired. So God compensated for Jonah's failure. That's important, isn't it? He compensated for Jonah's failure by providing him a plant that sprang up just like that. And it provided Jonah with shade that he was lacking. Jonah liked that didn't he? It's the first time in this whole book where we see Jonah is pleased. In verse 1 of this chapter, we're told literally that Nineveh's repentance displeased Jonah with a great displeasure. But now, in verse 7, we're told that he rejoiced over the plant with great rejoicing. Jonah is finally happy. Why is he happy? Because he received... Unmerited mercy from God in the form of the plant that provided pleasant shade, all the while he is where he is, watching Nineveh, hoping they be destroyed. Why? Because they receive mercy. Do you guys see? Mercy to him, he liked in the form of this plant. Mercy to Nineveh, he hated. When he extended to Jonah's enemies, divine mercy was displeasing. But when Jonah himself was the beneficiary of mercy, he was overjoyed. As we said before, Jonah doesn't mind mercy at all. He thinks grace is actually a pretty great thing. He, he was fine with mercy and grace as long as God didn't give it to his enemies. And this episode with the plant worm is God, God giving an object, lesson in mercy and grace to show Jonah the inconsistency of that belief. Through this elaborate picture God is asking Jonah, how can one want justice for others, but mercy for oneself? Why is grace a lovely idea when you are the recipient, but totally unfair when people you disdain get it? Why is justice a good idea for others, but not something you think you should get? These are the questions that are prompted through God at once appointing this plant to grow and shade Jonah only for him to appoint a worm to destroy it the next day. After the plant is destroyed by this worm, God appointed this wind like he did, right, in chapter one, to blow and the sun was beaten down on Jonah's stubborn head. Now Jonah is back to his miserable self, as we have seen, and he is feeling faint. Now, I don't know exactly what Jonah is feeling here with this hot desert sun and the wind, but I remember <laughs> vividly when we were coming back from Iraq, we had to stop in Kuwait for several days and the temperature was like 112 degrees and the wind was blowing and that grounded all the flights on the base's flight line. Well, all of that would have been fine, except the fact that the air conditioning in our tent went out. Then that thing became just a box of heat full of smelly troops, right? Right who were already anxious and irritated because they just want to get home. The Middle Eastern sun and then the heat and the wind is something you have to experience to believe. It's truly miserable. This is what Jonah is experiencing to a greater degree once his plant friend is destroyed. But behold the tenderness of God. God comes to Jonah once more and he asks him the same question he did earlier, right? Do you have a right to be angry? Why are you so angry? God asks us to get Jonah where he needs to be. This question, coupled with the growth and demise of this plant, is meant to trap Jonah. Okay, But not in a way for God to say, ha, gotcha, but in a compassionate way to show Jonah how illogical his application of mercy and justice is. If Jonah answers the question, do you have a right to be angry, with no, (laughs) I don't do well to be angry, then he's admitting, yes, His illogical, his inconsistency and prideful self-righteousness. But if he says, yes, I do well to be angry, then he's showing that he cares more for a plant that he had nothing to do with than he does people, which proves his callous inconsistency. It would show him that if he cared for something he did not plant or cultivate or harvest or water, then how much more should God care for people that he created and sustains? But further, the fact that Jonah is sitting there hoping that Nineveh will be destroyed and that he cares more for this plant he had nothing to do with than people shows that Jonah has more in common with the Ninevites than he realizes. Doesn't it? What was Jonah's problem with the Ninevites? It was that they were cruel, vicious people who had no regard for human life, right? That's why he hates Nineveh. So if Jonah wants the whole city to be destroyed and he wants... So watch it. What does that say about Jonah? It says that he is someone who has no regard for human life. It shows that he wants human life destroyed too, and that he wants to watch them die. So how different is he than the Ninevites? He might not actually have carried out physical violence toward them, but he's killed them a thousand times in his heart. And he sits in his little weird booth, because he's actively rooting for them to be destroyed. And he'd like nothing more than to see it. You see how brilliant God's question is here? But it's tender because it's equivalent to God coming and saying, come, let us reason together. He wants Jonah to see the folly of his ways and his similarity the very people he would see vanquish. Jonah wants justice to be sure, but he doesn't want it for himself. He's a disobedient rebel, who continues to spit in the face of God, who he claims to serve so loyally, unlike those filthy idolaters, right, who forsake his steadfast love. He wants justice, but not when he's the recipient of justice. As we said at the start, mercy and justice are clear cut for Jonah, but are they really? God's object lesson is so brilliant for so many different reasons. God understands that Jonah is miserable because of the wind and the sun beating down on him. God doesn't throw out that Jonah has a right to feel uncomfortable and in anguish. But the misery he feels is what Jonah deserves. That is, if we want to talk about justice and fairness. Right? Should God give Jonah justice or mercy? Jonah wants mercy. When he gets justice, he doesn't like it. Should God then give mercy or justice to Nineveh? They deserve justice, Jonah would scream. But so do you, God would say. You guys see the brilliance of this? God is testing Jonah with this question of his right to be angry. But Jonah once more flunks the test. In true toddler fashion. Isn't this comical? Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. To this, God says the final words of the book. You pity this plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make grow, which came up into being in a night, perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? This is the question of the book of Jonah, isn't it? I told you at the very start, the very first week of this series, that the key verse of the whole book is verse 11 of chapter four. Should God have compassion on the wicked? That's the question. Should God extend grace to the most evil people in the world? Should God offer repentance to the vilest wretches that you can think of? As Douglas Stewart says, anyone who replies to this question, why is this such an important question, has not understood the message. Anyone who replies no has not believed it. See, to this question, should God give mercy to the most evil people in the world? We want to say, yes, God should be compassionate to the wicked because that's the answer the book is trying to invoke. That's the Sunday school answer, isn't it? But is that how we really feel? Understand, Jonah didn't hate Nineveh simply because they were Gentiles. He didn't hate them just because he was a nationalist. Those factored in, but they weren't the main crux. He hated them because they were truly wicked. They delighted in killing the, in the most brutal ways imaginable. One king ripped off the lips and hands of his victims. Another one flayed victims alive. Sometimes they'd tie a rope around the ankle of the victim and tie the under end to the chariot and ride as fast as they can through the countryside. They piled bodies, the Bible says, so high and so wide, you would trip over them. That's why Jonah hated them. They were cruel. There's no doubt. Beyond measure the most wicked people in the world at this time should god have mercy on them should he give them grace should he offer them a chance to repent of their wicked ways it's not as clear cut is it as the sunday school answer let's bring it around to us should god give grace to your enemies should god give grace to the enemies of your nation should god give grace to serial killers should God give grace to the gangbanger who sells drugs to kids? Should God give mercy to the arms dealer or the human trafficker? Should God give mercy to the opposing political party? Would we prefer ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban to be destroyed or would it be okay with God extending grace to them so they could believe the gospel and be saved? In those times of war, Do we pray and hope for the destruction of our enemies, that they would be wiped off this planet so that they would get what's coming to them? Or do we pray that God would give them grace and that they would repent and believe the gospel? And if they did repent and believe the gospel, how would we feel about that? Would we rejoice or be bummed out that they didn't get the just desserts of their wicked deeds? You know, it's said that Jeffrey Dahmer repented and converted to Christianity before he died. Should God have extended grace to that wicked serial killer like him? You want to see him in heaven? With you and all the good and upstanding citizens that you know? Trevor Wax says, could it be possible that Jeffrey Dahmer, one of the most evil men to ever live, was granted eternal life? Could it be possible that a sweet old lady who never trusts in Christ would face judgment? If that scenario bothers you because you think the awful criminal deserves eternal judgment, but the kind, decent woman deserves eternal life, you haven't truly grasped just how radical the gospel of grace is. It means that deep down, you still think good people go to heaven, and bad people go to hell, but the gospel shatters the whole way of thinking. Scripturally speaking, there are no good people. The radical message of the gospel is that our problem, sin, is worse than anything we could ever imagine, but also the solution, grace, is better than anything we could ever deserve. Some of you may have heard of a man named Simon Weisenthal. He was a Jewish-Austrian Holocaust survivor, and he later became known as the Nazi hunter uh, because he would do exactly what that said. (laughs) He would track down fugitive Nazi war criminals. Well, he tells the story of when he was a young man. The Nazis came to his house, and they pushed his grandmother down the stairs, and she died from the fall. And then the last time he saw his mother, she was placed on a train and taken to a death camp. One day when Simon was in a concentration camp, there was a man came up to him, and he asked him, are you a Jew? And Simon was wearing that the star of David, right? on his uniform. So he couldn't lie. And he said, yes, I'm a Jew. So the man said, come with me. Well, he took him to the, out of the concentration camp, through the streets, into an old high school, which was a makeshift hospital. And they took him up to some stairs and into a dark room. It barely had any light in it. And the guard closed the door and he left Simon in there without saying a word. So Simon didn't know what he was supposed to do. So he stood there for a while and he, he figured, I'm just going to leave. Right. And so he started to open the door and just then a hand grabbed him, the hand of a dying SS soldier out of the darkness, grabbed him and the soldier said, my name is Carl, are you a Jew? And Simon said, yes, I'm a Jew. And the man, he confessed to all these horrible things that he had done as a Nazi soldier. And and he told Simon all this and he said, I need a Jew to tell me I'm forgiven. He had explained that he, how he had rounded up Jews and placed them in burning buildings. He'd gunned down some of them. And he said, I hate that I did that. I need a Jew to tell me I'm forgiven. Simon thought about that. He thought about how this could have been the man who pushed his grandmother down the stairs. Or this could be the man who put his mom on that train. And he stood there and he wrestled with the question of forgiveness and whether or not you forgive the man. And Carl said, please, I stepped on a landmine. I know I'm going to die soon, and I wish you would tell me I'm forgiven. I have to have a Jew tell me I'm forgiven. And Simon listened to him tell him this two or three times, and then he turned, and he walked out of the room without saying a word, and he left the building. What should Simon have done? Should he have forgiven the wicked and evil man who had done such horrible things? Well, here's the question. Would you have? See, and here's the bigger question, right? Should God have forgiven that man? Should God have extended grace to the, that man and given him an opportunity to repent and be saved? Should someone like that meet justice or meet mercy? Should people who have wronged you get grace? Should they get Forgiveness. If we're being honest, we want to say, no, they should just receive justice and only justice. To which the book of Jonah, with its plant and worm, is saying back, okay, then you should get justice too. For your sins, right? We're talking about fairness. We're talking about what we deserve. We're talking about this fairness that we're talking about. That's, that's when we say, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. <laughs> You have to understand that. You have to realize that. You see what we do with our sins? You you need to see things from my perspective that I... See, so, so then, would we be scandalized if we saw God's grace given to those we don't think should have it? Would we be angry like Jonah to see people we believe deserve pure justice, receive the kindness and mercy of God? Do we have a right... To be angry. Douglas Stewart says this, what do we have to demand that God should favor us and not others? What right have we to be angry that God should bless people, groups, institutions, and nations who have done nothing to deserve such blessings? Can we ever rightly resent, let alone denounce, the grace of God shown to any of the world's nations or peoples, oppressed or oppressor, peace-loving or war-making? What sense is there in the common implicit assumption that our only nation is his only nation? Now, see, if these suggestions outrage us or make us angry or uncomfortable, then we're starting to understand Jonah, aren't we? We're starting to see how we're just like him. But even more importantly, we're starting to understand grace because the grace of God is outrageous, it's offensive. And it's his to give as he wishes without asking anyone for approval on its bestowal. This book is trying to get to the question, who should God give grace to? Who should he give justice to? And we have to admit, whether we like it or not, he should give justice to everyone. And he should give grace to no one. That's what's actually fair. So as we said at the start, Jonah believes like us. Bad people should get bad. Good people should get good. And you know what? God would agree with that. The problem is there are no good people. There are only bad people. And that's where grace comes in because it only works for bad people. That's why it's at once inoffensive offensive and Beautiful. The most wicked person you've ever heard of deserves justice. And the best person you've ever heard of deserves justice too. The best person you've ever heard of does not deserve grace any more than the worst person you've ever heard of. But should God not give it anyway? We're like Jonah because we want justice. Do you guys see this in your heart? We want justice but never, ever for ourselves. We always want mercy. Yes? Always. Even when we're wrong. We always hope that we will get mercy and never justice. We're like Jonah because we want grace and mercy, but only for, or especially for, us and our tribe. We believe in sin. We believe in grace. But we somehow think we've deserved or merited grace, especially more than those wicked people and those vile people out there. But then that's a misunderstanding of grace altogether, isn't it? R.C. Sproul said it this way, it's impossible for anyone, anywhere, anytime to deserve grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. As soon as we talk about deserving something, we're no longer talking about grace, we're talking about justice. Only justice can be deserved. God is never obligated to be merciful. Mercy and grace must be voluntarily, voluntary or they are no longer mercy and grace. God never owes grace. He reminds us more than once, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. This is the divine prerogative. God reserves for himself the supreme right of executive clemency. And praise God that this is how he operates. Isn't that good news? Praise God that his grace is reserved for the undeserving. Praise God that His grace offends our sensibilities. Praise God that His grace wrecks our categories and blows apart our tidy but inconsistent ideas of what is fair. Because otherwise we'd be lost forever. If we received the justice we desperately want for others, there'd be no hope. There'd be no hope if we had to pay the just desserts of our wickedness, we'd be crushed under God's holy boot and He would be just to do it. But God is tender and loving and compassionate, not wishing to destroy anyone. He desires to give his grace to the unworthy. Not because they did something to deserve it, but because that's just how loving he is. You want justice and mercy? Look no further than to the cross, where justice and mercy met with no contradiction. You want justice? Jesus was innocent, yet he took on himself the justice you and I deserve. You want mercy? God in Christ offers it through the cross because of Jesus' life, because of Jesus' death, because of Jesus' resurrection, and not because of your own deeds. For you have none to commend yourself to God. Now that's offensive. (laughs) But But it's that scandal wherein our only hope resides. If there's anyone, do you think about this? If there's anyone who should be offended by grace, it should be Jesus. You know why? He's the only perfect person who's ever lived. He's the only one who's earned anything. He's the only one who doesn't deserve wrath. Yet he doesn't look at us riffraff and say, why should they get in? But instead, he was the very one who did all that he could to get us ragamuffins away into the kingdom like we belonged all along. Are you offended by grace yet? Because you should be. This is good news. It's good news that His grace is offensive grace, but it's also good news that His grace is lavish grace. This brings us to our second point. Our second point. Point number two. God's grace is outrageous in its lavishness. God's grace is outrageous in its lavishness. Truly, once you see the offensiveness of grace, you must see the lavishness of grace. In light of what we talked about so far, anything God gives us above what we deserve is lavish and abundant grace. Everything that we've ever enjoyed in this life that is better than hell is mercy. We see in the book of Jonah a prophet who has disobeyed God from the third verse of the book onward. Even his obedience in chapter 3 is half-hearted, phoned in obedience that worked out in spite of Jonah's meager efforts. And yet, God has done, everything God has done towards Jonah in this book has been grace. Everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. As we mentioned previously, we think about the book of Jonah. When you think about the book of Jonah, we think about the big fish, right? <laughs> That's the first thing we think of. It's so fantastical. And we think of the, this is punishment, right? This is punishment to Jonah, this big fish. But really, you know what the big fish is? Grace from God to Jonah to save Jonah from certain death and to give him a second opportunity in obedience let's think let's think once more about Jonah's trajectory okay and God's actions in this short book when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord he went where to not Nineveh right he went to Joppa down to Joppa yes down to the dock, down to the ship, down into the ship. He laid down, then he was thrown off the ship, then he sank it down into the sea. This we said is showing us sin running from God is always a downward trajectory, right? We we said sin and disobedience does not lead to a vivacious life of freedom, but is bondage that progresses downward and culminates in sleep. Sin points us down and down and down and down and down and further from the presence of the Lord. And when Jonah had this downward trajectory, what did God do? He appointed a wind. Then he appointed a storm on the sea. He appointed a big fish to swallow up Jonah. He appointed the fish to barf Jonah up on the shore of his own choosing. And he came to Jonah once more, offering him a second chance. Each of those appointments was grace from God. God would have been just and right to take Jonah out isn't that fair to say? From verse 3 of chapter 1. Take him out because of his disobedience or just get a prophet who would actually do what he was told. Instead, all we see is grace and grace and grace and grace and grace. God used all kinds of different means to offer it, but it's all grace to this wayward prophet. And now we're here in chapter 4 and Jonah's pouting. He walks out of the city. Note this in verse 5. He heads east. Why is that significant? Because frequently in the Bible, has some gee whiz, An eastward trajectory marks humanity's drift away from God. In Eden, when Adam and Eve were cast out, which direction did they go? East. Cain went east. The builders of the Tower of Babel went east. Lot went east, settled by Sodom and Gomorrah, just to name a few. So Jonah's eastward movement isn't just a neat detail that the author thought I'd throw in. It's showing us a resumption of his rebellious direction. But then when he posts up, And does what? He builds his own booth to shade himself, but his efforts are terrible, so God makes up for it. Do you guys see? Just like Adam and Eve's leaves and our own self-salvation projects, his makeshift booth didn't do the trick. In his lavish grace, God provides the covering. Then the worm eats the plant. It withers. The wind is appointed by God. It rises. The sun beats down Jonah. He says, it's better for me to die than live. And do you know who he said that to? You know who Jonah said, I'd rather die than live? Himself. Because his sin has given him an inward bent. Which is what sin does. It makes us be curved in onto ourselves. But every action of God is grace. From a plant to shade, to even his withdrawal of the plant, to the sending of the wind, because it's meant to get Jonah away from his eastward direction and out of his inward bent. Don't you see? That's why it's all Grace. But God used these uncomfortable, painful means to get Jonah out of himself, to get him out of his selfishness and pride, to get him out of his ethnocentric worldview, to get him out of his nationalism, to get him out of his hatred, to get him out of his missing out of what grace really means. The project of this book is Jonah, don't you see? So even the painful things in life are grace. Not, Not just grace, lavish grace. The circumstances in your life. Do you realize this? are grace from God to get you more of God. Even things that hurt are graces from God to get you out of yourself, out of that inward bent that we are all inclined towards, out of your attachment to things of earth to draw you closer to God. God destroys the plant that Jonah loves to get Jonah to both get out of himself and to challenge Jonah's comforts. And God's questions are designed to get him to see the ridiculous posture of that would care more, somebody who would care more about a stinking plant than about human beings. And my friend, he's using the circumstances in your life right now to do the same thing. To stop the inward curving that we're all prone to. To challenge your selfishness and self-centeredness and self-righteousness. To ask us, do you love sports and hobbies and cars and money and possessions and ambition and even your pets more than you love people? Jonah's turned inward, and in this moment, the only thing that matters in the whole world is how Jonah feels. You ever been like that? I bet you have. The only thing that's real to him is that everything is so unfair. Have you been there? He's comparing himself to the Ninevites. I'm good and a religious person, and they are wicked. Yet God is giving them grace. And I'm sitting here in this hot desert sun with nary a plant to shade my head. I want to die. What he's missing was even the hot desert sun and withered plant were grace. Have you ever asked yourself this? Why me? You ever asked yourself that before? You have, I have. Have you ever gone through something? Maybe you're going through it right now. And wonder, why do I have to endure such pain? And you look, and there's people out there, clearly evil, who prosper. Well, they don't have a care in the world. Why do I have to go through this? That's kind of what's happening with Jonah, right? And the Ninevites. He's comparing himself to them like he did with the sailors in chapter 2. But God is trying to show him here in the latter half of chapter 4 that he loves them despite their wickedness, the Ninevites. And he loves Jonah despite his proud and arrogant self-righteousness. If only he would humble himself, he would see clearly. God is coming to tell you the same thing in your circumstances. He's saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I am never unjust. And you need to stop looking at them and look at yourself to the grace that lines every circumstance. Stop comparing yourself to others. Look at yourself. Look beyond your circumstance to me. That's what God is trying to tell you and even the most painful things. There's a scene I'm reminded of in the book The Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis. It's in the Chronicles of Narnia. And this little boy, his name is Shasta. And he reminds me of Jonah here. Because in the scene I'm thinking of Shasta, he's tired. He's alone. He, He feels sorry for himself. And he starts to weep. And it was pitch black in there. He couldn't see anything. But suddenly he felt this presence with him. And he could hear breathing. And he finally speaks up and it turns out to be the great lion Aslan who's like the Christ figure in these book. And you know what Aslan says to him? He says, tell me your sorrows. So the boy goes on to tell Aslan of his escape from this adventure where he was chased by these lions and he had to jump into the water to escape from the danger and all these other difficult things that happened to him and now he's alone in this dark room and how unfortunate he was and all the unfairness that befell him. And you know what Aslan says? He says, I don't call that unfortunate. He says, "Jasta says, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? And Aslan said, there was only one lion. The boy said, how do you know? And Aslan said, I was the lion. See, Aslan was the one who chased him. (laughs) He was the one who the boy was running from. He was the one who put the boy in danger. And he was the one who comforted him in his dark room. Well, naturally, the boy wants to know why he went through all of that And he says, this other person had it so easy. And Aslan says, child, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Do You see, we want to know why others who we perceive to be more rebellious and wicked than we are seem so prosperous. And we're made to go through so many difficult things. To that, God is saying, don't worry about them. I'm telling you your story, not theirs. And He's doing that through graces that may not might not seem like graces at all, but if they lead us to Him, or back to Him, or more reliant on Him, or more loving towards others, or more selfless, or more gracious and merciful than we were before, they must be graces then. This is how lavish God's grace is towards us. All is grace. All is for our good. All is to get to Him. How can that be called anything but grace? And how could grace be called anything but lavish when we deserve none of it? But it's also lavish because the grace we get, should we see the truth of the gospel and the truth of ourselves, the truth of what we deserve and of what God offers and repent and believe, then we get Jesus. He's the prize. He's the jewel. He's the greatest of all gifts, the highest of all treasures, and we get Him, And the only way he knows how to give of himself is in abundance. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, we need to remember that there isn't a thing or substance or quasi-substance called grace. All there is is the person of the Lord Jesus. Christ clothed in the gospel. Grace is the grace of Jesus. He says, if I could highlight the thought here, there is no thing that Jesus takes from himself and then as it were hands over to me. There is only Jesus himself. You know, like Jonah, Jesus went and looked at a great city. Jonah's posted up, look at this great city. Jesus looked at a great city. But when he looked at that wicked city, he didn't root for its destruction. He didn't sit on the Mount of Olives hoping to see a light show from heaven to consume it like Jonah did. You know what he did instead over that city? You You know what he did when he beheld a city that in a few days' time would yell, crucify him! and cruelly cheer his gruesome death, what he did was he looked at that city and he wept. That's what he did. He longed, not for their destruction, but for their salvation. He pitied people the way that Jonah pitied that plant. And he looks at you the same, with the same pity. He cheers not for your destruction, but he pursues you like Aslan. And compassionately says, give me all your sorrows and burdens. I took on all that you deserve so that you could have what only I deserve. There's no greater grace than that. But two times, two times in Jonah 4, he is shown to be grieved even to death. You know what's interesting is there's one other place in the whole Bible where that exact phrase is mentioned, and I'm going to read it to you, okay? Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? But whereas Jonah said it because he desired to die due to the conversion of his enemies, Jesus said it because he desired to die so that his enemies would be converted. When Jonah said it, he said it because he was a pouty prophet who didn't care one bit about God's will. But when Jesus said it, he said it because the cup of God's wrath do you and me stood before him because he only cared about God's will. One day later when Jesus was hanging on the cross, bearing the punishment, the justice that you and I deserve, you know what he said of those mocking and jeering him? He said, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know something? That sounds like what God says in Jonah 4.11. Doesn't it? God says, should I not pity them, for they don't know their right hand from their left? Should I not pity them? What did Jonah say to that question? Look, what do he say? We don't know, do we? But I wonder how you would answer that question in verse 11. We don't know how Jonah answers It's an absolute cliffhanger, isn't it? The story ends as abruptly as it started. But why? Here's why. Because the question is aimed right at you and me. The question is directed to the audience Should God give mercy to the wicked? The way the book ends, it's an invitation to us. We want to know, I want to know, what happened next? but it's inviting us to write our own final paragraph and chapters. Don't you see? In other words, God is telling us to apply the text to our own lives. It's asking us, have you received grace? Truly received it? Has it apprehended you? Has it grasped you in your heart? Has it offended your sensibilities? Has it wrecked your categories? Has it transformed how you see the world and how you see people and how you see yourself and how you see God and of what you prioritize? That's what it's asking. Janet Gaines said it this way, it's primarily the reader on whom God's final word lands. The reader who has left upon her their meaning, the reader who must decide what actions to take next. Leslie Allen includes, concludes his commentary on Jonah by saying, a Jonah lurks in every Christian heart, whimpering his insidious message of smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, and exclusive solidarity. He that has a ear to hear, let him hear and allow the saving love of God, which has been outpoured in his own heart, to remold his thinking and social orientation. The book ends then with an invitation to you. God is asking you if you've internalized the lessons you've seen in the word over these last seven weeks. Have you seen yourself in Jonah? You should have. But do you also see that we're given this book not only to see ourselves in him, but to be invited to not be any longer? God is asking each and every one of us what we will thus do with what he has revealed to our hearts through his word. You know, Some of you are running from God. Some of you, the hound of heaven pursues you, and you need to cease your running. Some of you are going down and down and down with your sins, coddling them rather than killing them. Some of you have a self righteous posture that looks down on other people. Some of you are trying to justify yourself with your deeds, your impressiveness, and your stature. Some of you hold racial and ethnic bias. Some of you believe others are less deserving than grace in you. Whatever it is that God has revealed in these times through Jonah, what will you do? How will you respond?